So good afternoon, everybody. You can hear me fine with this. I can tell it's on. You know it's serious when I have something written down. <laughs> my introduction. So. In the old days, <laughs> I always like to tell stories. Right? So this, in the old days, both or before the present library was built, the, the Warfield lectures were held in the main lounge of Mackay. Uh, the speaker's lectern, this, uh, was beneath a towering portrait of Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, one of the best known of Princeton Seminary's 19th century theologians. I could never figure out if he was smiling or judging, um, or perhaps both. <laughs> but it was a fitting backdrop for the Warfield lectures. It was also misleading because the Warfield lectures are not named after him. They're named after his wife, Annie Kincaid Warfield. And there's a story behind this. We heard a little bit of it yesterday. So those of you who remember uh, won't be hearing this for the first time, but it's a good story. Shortly after their marriage in 1876, the Warfields moved to Leipzig, Germany, where Benjamin pursued studies in theology. On an excursion to the Hartz Mountains, which those of us who know German history know these are special, the Hearts Mountains. Um, but in any case, not surprisingly there, um, there was a violent thunderstorm, which surprised, did surprise the couple as they were hiking. Annie's nerves were shattered. Those are the words that are used in the literature. Um, and she never recovered. Benjamin cared for her for the rest of her life. Students and colleagues could see them walking slowly across the campus and the picture of the husband's gentleness inspired many who also knew his professorial rigor. As Hugh Thompson Kerr said in his own Warfield lectures here many years ago, devoted hardly contains the weight of Benjamin's loyal commitment to his lifelong companion. He guarded, protected, and stood by her while pursuing his full teaching and writing assignments. He himself, by his own choice, became house confined and scarcely ever ventured more than an hour or two from her side. After describing their relationship and Benjamin's intellectual life a bit more, Kerr closes the scene with a question. After all the years of teaching, writing, and editorial work, what can we suppose was in his mind when, in his last will and testament, he made provision for an annual lectureship on the Reformed faith in the name of Annie Kincaid Warfield? Perhaps this year's Warfield Lectures will help us answer that question. It is my uh, great pleasure to introduce our speaker, Professor Friederike Nüssel, who teaches systematic theology at the University of Heidelberg, and whom I have known for many years, I believe it. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Nüssel has published copiously on various topics in systematic and ecumenical theology, uh, including books on the development of Lutheran doctrines of justification, an introduction to ecumenical theology, and a recent work on Lutheran theology in contexts beyond Europe, among others. Her ecumenical, we're smiling because I contributed to that volume. <laughs> Her ecumenical work covers a breathtaking range, including the working group between the World Council of Churches and the Vatican. When it comes to discussing the future of Protestant theology in the ecumenical age, Professor Nussel is the first person I would turn to first. 
And so I'm pleased and honored to introduce her to you this afternoon. Thank you. God is spirit, narrating God's revelation as spirit is the topic of this afternoon's lecture. And I begin with biblically consolidating the experience of the spirit. The sentence, God is spirit, is particularly pertinent sentence in the Bible, even if only from a purely linguistic perspective. Definitions are rather rare in the linguistic world of the Bible. To convey conceptual knowledge that can be grasped through definitions is not the goal of biblical speech about God, the world, and humanity. Rather, it is about an effectively rooted knowledge mediated through address and narrative. Since God is immeasurable and incomprehensible and God's ways are inscrutable, knowledge of God even seems to exclude conceptual speech and definitions. The desire to see or behold God is life-threatening. When Moses asks God for the name of the one who is speaking from the burning bush, he only receives the information defying the need for a name and with it a purpose, I will be who I will be. In this statement, God describes God's self as the power of the future and indirectly also as the power of history. However, a conceptual determination cannot be derived from it. General concepts for the nature of God as they were de developed later in philosophical theology with terms like summum bonum prima causa, causa spiritualis infinita, and so on, are foreign to biblical witness. Despite the absence of definitions and conceptual language, however, we find three sentences in the New Testament that have grammatical characteristics of a definition, namely, God is light, God is love, and God is spirit. The three phrases differ not only in what they say about God, but also that they are said by different people. The first two statements are formulated by the author of the first letter, letter of John, the claim, God is spirit, attributed to Jesus by John, is found in the story of the Samaritan woman. In commentaries on the Gospel of John, there are very different interpretations of the character and implications of this definition. Ulrich Wilkins actually sees the scope of the sentence as strong in the def definition and understands it as an essential statement about God's aseity in self-revelation. From the perspective of a Barthian theology of revelation, one would naturally like to adopt this interpretation, yet exegetically, it is probably an over-interpretation. Other exegetes um, do not value the definitive character so highly. One could surely agree with Jean Zumstein when he says that the phrase God is spirit is not an ontological statement about the nature of God, but describes how God relates to human beings. In the context of his conversation with the Samaritan woman, Jesus is not discussing the divine nature, but wants to explain why right worship can only be done in spirit and in truth. 
While most translations render Jesus' phrase as God is uh, spirit, it would have to be translated literally as spirit is God. In the background of this emphasis is the differentiation from the flesh, as Klaus Wengst uh, plausibly argues. Since God is spirit, worship in the flesh is inadequate. Thus, a right relationship with God can only exist in correspondence to God's nature as spirit, which, was, which is, what, uh, is what Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, who was a representative of a group that, unlike the Jews, do not know what they worship, according to Jesus. The statement about God as spirit in John's gospel does not divert from the narrative style of biblical thinking. Who God is, is narrated, which is essentially the case in the Gospel of John. Thus, the phrase, God is spirit, can function as a starting point for pneumatological dogmatics for two reasons. On the one hand, this sentence, like the affirmation that God is love, has been taken up in theological doctrinal development as a definition of the divine essence and has strongly influenced, if not determined, the development of the doctrine of God and the Trinity. On the other hand, in a synchronic, perhaps a, also a diachronic reading of the biblical writings, it can be understood as a consolidation of the abundant references to God's spirit in the biblical writings, in the background of which are the manifold experiences of the spirit. I would like to elaborate briefly on both points. First, on the theological and doctrinal development. In the patristic tradition, talk of God is spirit was not spoken of with an emphasis on the categorical difference between spirit and body or spirit and matter. This categorical difference became central in scholastic theology and would <coughs> go on to shape doct uh, theological doctrine beyond the Enlightenment period. In Thomas Aquinas, the proposition God is spirit establishes that God is not a body. If God were a body, God could not be, un unmove, uh, the, could not be the unmoved mover, since God's being would not be a necessary being and would not be the most distinguished of all beings. So it is impossible that, that God is a body, a claim found at the beginning of Thomas' doctrine of God. As Thomas proceeds in his thought, he conceptually excludes the possibility of a composition in God, particularly the composition of form and matter. Thus, Thomas connects the incorporeal being of God as spirit with the wide um, idea of total simplicity. In Reformed and Lutheran dogmatics, God's simplicity is equally emphasized. It is only in some modern theologies that this radical opposition between God as spirit and a particular materiality is called into question. In addition to its influence on the determination of God's essence, the proposition God is spirit also influenced the de development of the doctrine of the Trinity. No sentence of the Bible played such an important role in enforcing that one could not stop at the statement about the unity of essence of the Son with the Father, which was dogmatized in the first ecumenical council of Nicaea in 325, 
like the full deity of the Son, the full deity of the Spirit had to be brought out as well, which was done after extensive disputes at the Council of Constantinople at 300, in 381 in the formulation, simple formulation, we believe in the Holy Spirit who is Lord and gives life. Uh, <clears throat> second, um, the biblical um, consolidating of the Spirit's experience. The second reason for uh, typing, uh, tying pneumatological dogmatics to the phrase God is Spirit is, as previously indicated, that it re represents a consolidation of talk about God's Spirit in the biblical writings. In the Hebrew Bible, God's spirit and human spirit are spoken of in a large variety of ways. God's spirit uh, works creatively and gives life and vitality. The spirit directs the human mind and it gives wisdom and various capacities. There is usually not a clear distinction between the work of God's and human ability. In any case, God's spirit works in the judges, in the kings, regularly in David, and later in the prophets. The spirit of God works creatively, transforms, and renews. In the Hebrew Bible, it is not claimed that God is spirit. Such a statement is opposed, for example, to um, Isaiah 40, verse 13, with the question, who has directed the spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has instructed him, Moreover, God's spirit can be used synonymously with God's presence, as in Psalm 139. <clears throat> where can I go from your spirit? Or, far can I, uh, or where can I flee from your presence? In contrast, idols are without breath, spirit, and vitality. God's spirit then cannot be separated from God. God acts through God's spirit as a life-creating force. One cannot escape God's spirit. Through God's spirit, God elects a people, calls people into service, and inspires action. Cleansing from sin and conversion to God depends on God's gift of the spirit, Psalm 51. Likewise, in Isaiah 63, we find the only two passages where the phrase Holy Spirit is mentioned in the Hebrew Bible, which then it is taken up more regularly in the New Testament. While in the Hebrew Bible, the creative and life-giving power plays an important role, this dimension of the working of the spirit goes into background in the New Testament writings. Instead, aspects of spirit's work whereby people are moved to conversion and faith are gathered for fellowship in the body of Christ and are enabled to pray and interpret scripture come into focus. Second, the spirit <clears throat> as dynamis gift and medium. Throughout the Bible, though with different emphasis and clarity in the various scriptures, a threefold definition of the spirit is brought to the fore. First, the spirit is life-giving power. I would like to describe this aspect with the Greek term dynamis, particularly to avoid the association of power. Second, the spirit is gift. The spirit is the life force breathed into creatures understood as a gift. Yet the spirit can also be given to people in such a way that it directs their feelings and moods and helps them to accomplish particular tasks as we see 
see, especially in the prophets, when the spirit is given in order for them to carry out their prophetic task. In the New Testament, the spirit is the gift of knowledge and wisdom. Additionally, a variety of gifts of the spirit, charisms, play an important role in shaping communal Christian life. Third, the spirit appears to be the medium of God's presence. God's spirit is present everywhere and, and one cannot escape it. At the same time, the spirit is a medium of relationship with God, as Jesus calls in John um, uh, 4.24, the worship God in spirit and in truth. <clears throat> Moreover, the spirit as medial power makes use of media itself in its work. At the center are the word and symbolic action, which are later characterized theologically as the sacraments. The three dimensions or functions of the spirit are not sharply distinguished from each other, but are mutually dependent. The gift of the spirit is nothing static, but owes itself to the dynamis of the spirit and is dynamically realized. Likewise, the spirit is also not a static medium of God's presence, but mediates God's presence dynamically. Nevertheless, in the different effects of the spirit of which the biblical writings speak, the dynamic given, giving and medium functions are linguist, linguistically differentiated. While Jesus' statement about God as spirit in John 4.24 does not specify what spirit actually means, the complex variety of experiences of spirit as dynamis, gift, and medium are not only in the background, but also determine the Johannine language about the spirit. Hence, the Johannine statement attributed to Jesus can be understood as a consolidation of the speech about the spirit of God. It makes explicit what is implicit in the statements of the tradition. God not only has a spirit, but is spirit. Since God's life-giving dynamis is responsible for God's self-communication and presence. The Gospel of John is in this respect groundbreaking for the later development of the doctrine of the Trinity due to its narratival account and this of the spirit nature of God and the numerous relationships between the Son, the Father, and the Spirit. The synoptic gospels and the epistles also speak of God as Father, of the deity of the Son, and of God's Holy Spirit, which is sometimes done in dyadic and triadic formulas. Lingu linguistically forming the basis for the later development of the doctrine of the Trinity. More significantly than the other synoptics, John writes throughout his gospel about Jesus as the word or son in relation to the father and about the role of the spirit in relation to the father and the son. In so doing, John leaves no doubt that the Father, Son, and Spirit are relationally determined by an intimate unity. Thus, more clearly than the other New Testament authors, John lays the groundwork for talk of God as Trinity and its further development in Trinitarian theology. The Spirit and the Doctrine of Trinity. The doctrine of Trinity, which developed in several stages in the fourth century and subsequently made binding for the Christian interpretation of the faith 
is the result of a long and complex debate. As is well known, this debate started from the question of the understanding of Jesus' relational sonship to the God the Father. In these debates, the talk of the Spirit of God in the Old Testament and the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is presupposed and does not initially pose a problem. The result of the debate, however, is that the Spirit is determined to be the third person of the one being of God, along with the Father and the Son. As mentioned early, earlier, the full deity of the Spirit is stated in the Council of Constantinople um, 381, just as the Son is one being with the Father, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, um, is, is, it affirms in the Nicene Creed, the same is then claimed about the Spirit. With this inclusion, the Spirit ultimately moves to the third place in the consideration of the immanent being of God, which is remarkably given, um, which is remarkable, given the spirit is already mentioned in the second sentence of the Hebrew Bible, immediately after the introductory sentence, in the beginning God created heaven and earth. The pneumatology of the great Cappadocians sets the stage for the further development of the doctrine of the spirit. Their pneumatology is consequential in several respects. On the one hand, it does justice to biblical speech of the spirit belonging to God, who is called the Holy Spirit. While on the other hand, it elucidates the equal status of the spirit with the Father and the Son. If the Son is God from God, the Holy Spirit cannot be less God. While subordinationism is avoided, with the recognition of the Spirit's unity of essence with God, the designation of the Spirit as the third person is compiled with how they viewed the Spirit's fundamental soteriological role in the economy of salvation. In the economy of salvation, the Spirit is no less important than the Son, and yet the Spirit is given a third place which is only coherent in so far as the work of the Spirit in people follows the mission and history of Jesus. This formulation is how the creeds of the early church describe the essence and work of the Spirit, which sets the course for dogmatic doctrinal development and talk about the Spirit. In the systematic presentations of Christian doctrine, the spirit is spoken of in the third person, both in the immanent doctrine of the Trinity and in the presentation of the economy of salvation. In the form of, a treat in the form of treatment, it is no longer is expressed that the entire econo economy of salvation depends on the work of the spirit. In the dynamics of Western formation of doctrine, it is even more the case than in the Eastern developments. Although the double homoousia of the Son and the Spirit is meant to prevent subordination, when reading Western dogmatics well into the 20th century, one can nevertheless still get the idea that the Spirit is less important than Father and Son. In Western pneumatology, two theological ideas have supported the tertiary, tertiary position of the Spirit. First, the monarchy of the Father, and second, the differentiation of Father, Son, and Spirit by their inner Trinitarian relations of origin, that of begetting and breathing. Both ideas, although not intended in this way, 
suggest thinking in terms of unilaterally dependent relationships. We come to the monarchy of the father. Dealing with the idea of the monarchy of the father enters ecumenically sensitive territory, since it is a key idea in Greek thought. One of the main criticisms in the disputes over the filioque was that the Western understanding of the spirit as proceeding from the father and the son violated the monarchy of the father, his sole originality. However, one will need to inquire further regarding what sense a monarchy of the father is suggested by the New Testament scriptures to <clears throat> justify such reading. The difficulty of the concept lies in the fact that a monarchy of the father alone, ipso facto, leads to a notion of, of subordination, since the son and the spirit are precisely not the origin and unilaterally depend on the orig original being of the father. In contrast to this one-sided dependence, Athanasius emphasized that the father is only father via the son and thus depends on the son for his being as father. This idea has become important in the modern doctrine of the Trinity in many authors, especially Jürgen Moltmann, Wolfhard Pannenberg, Robert Jensen, and recently Veli Mati Kerkenen. Already in the patristic debate, one can see that the one-sided relational dependence in the immanent Trinity is opposed by the idea of perichoresis. Only in the reciprocal in interabiding in one another are Father, Son, and Spirit, the one God. The unity of God, however, is constitutive for the deity of the Father. Based on the absolutely reciprocal relations and dependencies between Father, Son, and Spirit, Pannenberg arrives at the following conclusion, quote, the monarchy of the father is not the prerequisite, but the result of the interaction of the three persons. It is the seal of their unity." End quote. A crucial presupposition of, for this understanding is a critique of the second idea mentioned above. That is, the differentiation of the Trinitarian persons through relations, which indicate relations of origins. Pannenberg rightly notes that the relations of origin, begetting and breathing do occur in the New Testament statements, but rather marginally, marginally. These varied relations between God's spirit, Jesus and the Father that are narr narratively configured in the gospels are relationships of giving and receiving, of coming alive and being alive, of going and coming. These relationships are mediated by the work of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit overcomes Mary in conception. In baptism, Jesus receives the Spirit. The Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. It is with him on the way um, <coughs> uh, when he goes uh, at places, enables him to interpret the scriptures. Jesus' words are spirit and life. By the spirit of God, he casts out demons. He rejoices in the Holy Spirit. He asks the Father for sending of the spirit. And on the cross, he puts his spirit into the hands of the Father. It is the spirit of God who raises Jesus from the dead. After the resurrection, he gives the Holy Spirit to the disciples. 
Robert Jensen has elaborated this spirit determination of Jesus' life particularly well in his systematic theology. The Gospels tell, uh, tell the life of uh, the story of Jesus as one determined and sustained by the power of the Spirit. Nothing happens without the working of the Spirit. The implication is that Jesus' relationship with the Father as it unfolds in the process of Jesus' life is also determined by this power of the Spirit. In the power of the Spirit, Jesus places his life in the service of the proclamation of the kingdom of God and in the service of God. In this way, he experiences God as Father in whom he trusts, even to the point of his own estrangement on the cross, which is overturned by the resurrection fulfilling his earthly life. In the narrative connection of Jesus' life, suffering, and resurrection, the sonship of Jesus and the fatherhood of God are thus revealed, both via the action of the Spirit. If one takes this constitutive role of the Spirit's work seriously, it becomes clear how fundamentally the Father's monarchy depends on the Spirit's working in and through Jesus. The dependence is so foundational that it raises the questions or a question of whether it actually disrupts the idea of the monarchy of the Father and whether one should not actually speak of a monarchy of the Spirit. It is, not, is it not the Spirit, the Arche, the principle, the origin to which the Father owes the attribution of his monarchy? There are temptations in theology and in all areas of life. And I readily admit that I am tempted <laughs> to replace the idea of the monarchy of the Father by the idea of the monarchy of the Spirit, even if that would be an ec ecumenical atrocity. <laughs> however, <laughs> however, fortunately, the Spirit guards against such replacement. Since the nature of the spirit, according to the biblical witness, is always inclusive, pointing outward to someone or someone else. Thus, the spirit is dynamis, gift, and medium. The spirit strengthens creation rather than self with vitality. The spirit acts as a gift for others and as medium, makes the father and son present to humanity. The spirit is only spirit through self-communication. Thus, the spirit is the one who sets this concept of the father's monarchy into motion. Therefore, it would be contrary to the insight into the primary effectiveness of the spirit where one to, pl place, where one to replace the idea of the monarchy of the father with a monarchy of the spirit. No temptation. <laughs> The concept of the monarchy of the father, nevertheless, remains cumbersome, especially understood linguistically as a monarchy, a word incapable of expressing the reciprocity intended when one speaks of a monarchy of the father. Without det detailed theological explanation, the notion is an imposition. 
which is considerably increased by the fact that it is afflicted with paternalistic ideas that have legitimized oppression and violence against women and children for centuries, and still do so in many societies of the world, while at the same time playing into the hands of political claims to autocracy. For ecumenical theology, there is a twofold task here in conversation with theologies that regard the idea of monarchy as a key concept for understanding God. On the one hand, the problems of the concept must be addressed regarding its culturally formative power. On the other hand, theological reflection on ideas of mutual distinctions and immanent Trinitarian perichoresis must challenge the notion of the unilateral dependence of the Son and the Spirit on the Father, as Moltmann, Pannenberg, and many others, other modern theologians have done. Beyond this ecumenical task, another task is to rethink theological language and consider the problems perpetuated by patri patriarchal language which has been pioneered by many American feminist scholars in recent decades. A project stemming from this development in Germany is the Bible in just language, Bibel in gerechter Sprache, which was produced between 2001 and 2006 by 40 female and 12 male biblical scholars from Germany, Austria, and Switzerland. An attempt was made to speak of God consistently as male and female. Since the word spirit is masculine in German, Ruach and Pneuma are translated as spirit power because power is feminine. <laughs> if, <clears throat> if I understand correctly, the project has now been focused on furthering the li linguistic categories to the, include the concerns of LGBTQIA plus community. Personally, I think the debate about gendered language in theology is important, and I see the need to be accountable for the form of language one chooses. In what I have said so far about the Trinitarian persons, I have stuck with the conventional biblical terminology. It is, of course, influenced by the patriarchal structures from the time. Ne nevertheless, as I interpret it, Jesus addressed to his father is not a gender-oriented symbolization, but rather a symbolic reference to loving care that defines Jesus' understanding of God. Accordingly, the use of father and son is not intended to emphasize the relationship of two male beings, but rather the parent-child relationship as a metaphor for a relationship characterized by care and trust. The metaphor of the parent-child relationship thereby symbolizes not only the quality of the relationship, but at the same time its indissolubility. As um, <clears throat> two um, South African uh, researchers say, um, Lepo Mudiza and Hanali Wood at the University of South Africa, um, they see it in the, uh, say that in the cultural situation of antiquity, it was natural to symbolize the image of God with the role of the father because caring guidance of the family's destiny was expected from the father. As much as the father metaphor was and is patriarchally abused, it can become appropriate again in contexts 
where family structures are fragile and disrupted, as Modise and Wood argue. Along similar lines, as Janet Soskis and Sarah Coakley, I think it is legitimate to stick with the biblical metaphors of father and son in what follows. Alternating between he, father, son, and she, mother, daughter, would be possible, but would again insinuate that the designations were primarily about gender, which they are not. Vinculum caritatis, there is a um, wrong word on your um, uh, handout, it should be car caritatis and not trinitatis, and the filioque clause. After these reflections on the problematic talk of the monarchy of the father and the equally problematic idea of the relations of origin, let's turn um, <coughs> to the Trinitarian nature of God and the role of the spirit. In the story of Jesus as told in the gospel, the spirit mediates the relationship between father and son. From the mediatory role, the development of the doctrine of the Trinity deduced that the spirit has a constitutive significance for the triune life of God. Yet is the spirit then the bond of love, the vinculum caritatis between father and son? Does the spirit draw the spirit's hypostatic nature from its function? As is well known, Augustine developed this line of Trinitarian conception. Following Romans 9, uh, 5, uh, verse 5, Augustine understood the spirit as the love of God that inwardly causes us to desire God, who is to be known in Christ. Pneumatology, therefore, becomes a function of Christology. Um, however, it is not only in relation to us that the spirit is love, but for Augustine, the spirit is also the relational movement of love within the Trinity itself. One of Augustine's significant and seminal insights here is that persons are constituted by their relations. Given that the spirit is the bond of love between the father and the son, the relation by which the spirit is constituted is the one uniting the father and the son. The spirit's personhood is derived from the love between father and son, which the spirit exalts, implying the spirit depends on the father and the son and the spirit's being. Although Augustine did not yet assert that the spirit proceeds not only um, from the father alone, the filioque clause is nevertheless a consequence of his theology of the Trinity. With ecumenical aims, modern Western theologians such, such as Moltmann, Pannenberg, Kerkenen, and others have criticized the filioque on theological grounds. Theologically, the idea that the spirit proceeds from the father and the son is false, if only because it overlooks the fact that Jesus depends on the activity of the spirit in his life story, particularly in the resurrection. This activity of the spirit recedes into the background with when the spirit is taught, <coughs> is thought of as the bond of love between father and son and as emanating from both. Filioque theology definitely pushes the spirit in the into the third place in terms of dogmatic treatment. Intrinsically, the spirit is then subordinate to father and son as only being their bond. As a consequence, the spirit's role is found in the economy of salvation. The signific significance of the work of the spirit in the doctrines of creation 
and Christology, however, also tends to recede in the background. As is well known, the filioque clause was rejected by the theologians of the Eastern Church for both theological and ecumenical reasons. In terms of the Trinitarian theology, the filioque challenges the monarchy of the father. Ecumenically, the insertion of the filioque into the creed represents a break with the common decision of the synod, whose doctrinal decision is believed to have been inspired and shaped by the spirit. As for the doctrine of the Trinity, it is interesting to note that in Eastern Orthodox theology, the <coughs> um, it appears uh, wrong, the filioque appears wrong precisely because it undermines the idea of God being love in its immanent divine essence. Um, thus, the Romanian theologian Dumitru Staniloe, in his orthodox dogmatic theology, explains through an, an analysis of the idea of love that true love always requires a third subject or party. If true love could uh, be realized perfectly in the relation between two subjects, this would entail that the both subjects are no longer capable of relating to other subjects outside their union. It is true that the communion between two allows them to enjoy existence together. Yet if the two remain present only one another, to one another, they have no certainty of their existence since they are completely absorbed in their relation to one another. At the same time, in this enclosure, um, Staniloi uses a nice um, uh, 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 picture. He says, they are not only a window, but also a wall for each other. <laughs> Such love is not open to relationship and is truly, it is not truly selfless. Selflessness, however, is part of the essence of love. Referring to the intra-Trinitarian love of God, Staniloe concludes, in line with Orthodox tradition, that the love of the Trinity only becomes truly holy through the Holy Spirit. This conclusion implies the Holy Spirit as not only being the bond between Father and Son, but a third alongside the Father and the Son. Stanley says, quote, the Holy Spirit represents the power by which the love that exists between Father and Son is extended to other subjects. The analysis of the idea of love is supplemented by a consideration of the perfection of the number three. It is intended to explain why love between two requires a third, but also why no further instances are necessary. While the third unit or hypostasis gives objectivity and openness to the relation between the two first two hypostases, this function would only be repeated with further hypostasis. They would thereby, thereby simply possess no particularity other than the one of the third. The explanation of the spirit as a distinct hypostasis proceeding from the notion of selfless love and from the analysis of the per perfection of the number three is fascinating, but also problematic. It clearly goes beyond the New Testament statements about the spirit. Thus, it falls, falls prey to the criticism of the derivation of the Trinity. 
Hanberg has taken conceptual issue not only with the idea of love in Augustine, but also with the explanation of the Trinity through the concept of absolute spirit in Hegel. He also criticizes the development of the doctrine of the Trinity from within the doctrine concept of revelation as one finds it in Barth. Nevertheless, the argument for the hypostatic character of the spirit in the orthodox tradition contains important insights for Trinitarian theology. First, Stanilohi contends that the person or hypostasis gains relative autonomy through active relations. However, he counts not only obvious active relations, such as the glorification among these action, active relations, but also the passive sounding relations of being begotten, being born, and being breathed. So this is a rather modern understanding of um, <coughs> a relation. For Stani Loy, these two are active because they imply active participation. Second, the hypostasis of the spirit, if it is to mediate communion between father and son, must also be determined by this activity. Thus, more can be said of the spirit than simply that the spirit was breathed by the father and the son. The activity of the spirit is realized to a greater extent through being a life giver and comforter. If on the one hand, the spirit were understood only as a bond of love between the father and the son, the result would be that the persons merge without distinction in their relationship. Third insight, the spirit enables the selfless love between father and son precisely by affirming their invariable difference. Again and again, from the ancient debates to contemporary theology, orthodox theologians have made this point consistent with New Testament affirmations. The special role of the spirit as the life-giving spirit of God is found in determining the distinctness of the son from the father, and conversely, the distinctness of the father from the son. Through the spirit's activity, the son is the son of the father, and the father is the father of the son. Understood this way, the spirit is not simply vinculum, not a go-between, but rather the distinctness of the father and the son is dependent on the spirit's action. By making the father and the son distinct, the spirit establishes their communion. Thus, one does not have to affirm the threefold concept of love or the perfection of the number three in order to understand the orthodox filioque critique. On the concept of the person, even if this, uh, these Trinitarian theological considerations sound speculative, they do not address the web of relationships, they do address the web of relationships that emerges in the New Testament. The attempt to develop a pneumatologically driven dogmatic interpretation of the faith, these relationships are a necessary pre prerequisite for discerning the role, the role of the spirit, not only in the traditional contexts of soteriology and ecclesiology, but also in the doctrines of creation and Christology. Which brings me to my final point of this afternoon's lecture. Since the theological proposal 
of Isaac Augustana on the question of how to refer to the Father, Son, and Spirit with one term. There has yet to be agreement in Western theology. In his Glaubenslehre, Dorner proposed to speak no longer of persons, but of modes of being, Seinsweisen. Karl Barth followed suit, and more recently in Germany, Wilfried Herle as well, because they thought the concept of person emphasizes the independence too strongly and promotes a treatistic image of God. Other theologians, such as Moltmann and Panberg and Kerkinen, have held on the, onto the concept of person, not only because it is traditional, uh, the traditional concept, but because speaking of modes of being carries the danger of modalism. Dumitru Staniloe even uses the term subject and speaks of the intersubjectivity of father, son, and spirit. However, the concept of a subject is associate in, uh, associated in modern Western thought with self-consciousness and autonomy, and thus overemphasizes the independence of father, son, and spirit. The concept of person is more appropriate to my understanding because personhood is relationally constituted. Moreover, it can be understood as a metaphor when applied to God as, as can Father, Son, and Spirit, which is advantage over the phrase Seinsweisen, modes of being, which cannot be understood metaphorically. A, me a metaphorical mode of expression is appropriate in the doctrine of God because it further substantiates the inadequacy of language and concepts to fully grasp the essence of God. Short conclusion, <clears throat> the subject of today's lecture was the tensions found in the biblical language about spirit and the, their expression in the development of Trinitarian theology. The consolidation of the experience of the spirit in Jesus' word, God is spirit, is predicated on the understanding of the spirit narratively laid out in the biblical witness. The doctrine of the spirit in Trinitarian theology refers to the spirit as the third person and thereby unintentionally paves the way for the dogmatic neglect of the spirit. However, biblically, the spirit is not subordinate and the understanding God as Trinity is also not to be deployed in this way, since father and son exist through the spirit both differentiating and uniting them. This peculiarity of the Spirit's work will be further pursued in the next lecture on the doctrine of creation. Yes.